0: Bitcoin miners are unique because of how fast, transparent, and flexible their response can be to pricing fluctuations. Riot's Windstone Mining Farm in Texas is a perfect example of miners powering down during tight conditions in ERCOT. During winter storms in February 2022, the site powered down 99% of its operations to reduce load. This flexibility made headlines. Now imagine if ERCOT had visibility of every miner over 10 megawatts that's connected to the transmission network. The price at which the machines break even would then become an integral aspect of wholesale power pricing because the Bitcoin miners themselves can set the wholesale price. The best in Bitcoin made Audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We have got another great read today. Uh, before getting into uh, some other stuff coming this week, uh, like I said, my bullish guy's take is still on the way, um, and the notes are amazing. I this is gonna be this is gonna be a pretty epic episode when I finally put all this together. Um, but uh, we today, I have had about thirty of you email and or or, or DM and or comment. And mention this to me about Bitcoin Mining and the Grid. Uh, This is a thing on Brains. This B-R-A-I-I-N-S. So it's like Brains OS. They have uh, published uh, uh, Blake King. Blake King is the author and he has started a series in their Bitcoin Mining Insights uh, blog or newsletter, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this is part one of Bitcoin mining in the grid. and it is really good. Nick Carter recommended it, and I was kind of like on top of it, on top of it immediately. Um, so this is going to be a really, really fun one to break into about some more of the specifics and a really good introduction into the problems of the grid, the incentives, the you know trying to predict the price and how Bitcoin mining fits into all this. And it really is just kind of an incredible incredible thing, um, and and I think Blake just like lays it out really well in this piece. So, um, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, really quick, though, I forgot about Fountain. So, I know a lot of you guys have been streaming sats on Fountain, and I got an email from those guys. One of you won 50,000 sats, and I totally forgot to mention it on the show. And that winner is of 50,000 sats for streaming sats to me on Fountain. .fm, Or well the fountain app. It is Dude I'm Stoked. That is the handle at dude I'm stoked. So congratulations and sorry for the two-week delay on this. Uh just totally, totally slipped my mind. Um, but I'm gonna contact those guys and let them know, and uh they'll get 50,000 sats into your account. Congrats, man. Thanks for streaming sats. Alright, now before we get into uh uh, the read uh, i just want to thank our amazing sponsors we have swanbitcoin.com uh, go to slash guy and you will see my beautiful face and a wonderful intelligent quote from George truly about how great bitcoin is and it is the place to buy bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com oh and also don't forget that they're still doing the uh, well actually i think they're about to expand it but the um, blood drive or the the donating plasma for $100 in Bitcoin straight to your SWAN account. Go to guyswan.com blood for all the details for the locations. And I think it's actually going to be rolled out nationwide. So anyway, buy Bitcoin at SWAN. Uh, and a huge thank you to uh, the Bitbox, to the Shift Crypto guys, and, uh, and for making just such a great hardware wallet that I am a huge fan of and supporting the show, making this possible. With that. Let's get into today's read and it is from the Brains OS blog and it's titled Bitcoin Mining and the Grid, Part 1, Generators Written by Blake King Energy grids and Bitcoin mining are two fairly complex topics, but understanding generators is key to learning about both. This article is the first in a series about Bitcoin mining and energy infrastructure. Each article offers an introductory level explanation of electrical grids and their relationship with mining to better educate miners and other Bitcoin investors. The most impressive characteristic of Bitcoin is the mining algorithm. More beautiful than the math and theory behind the issuance and difficulty adjustments themselves is the fact that it all actually works that mining death spirals don't occur that there is a global distribution of hash rate competing for power infrastructure and cheap rates it's amazing what was once cypherpunks competing with laptops in the late 2000s is now an incredible ecosystem of radically different business models hosting and licensing on-grid proprietary behemoths, generator joint ventures, off-grid natural gas, and even pig manure. Because of this incredible success and diversity of business models, there is no shortage of arguments about Bitcoin mining's effect on the grid. Oftentimes, Bitcoin investors find themselves on social media, this author included, arguing pointlessly against one belief about Bitcoin and energy, and then turn around an hour later to argue with someone else on the complete opposite side of the political spectrum about their beliefs on the same topic. Energy and Bitcoin mining are two fairly complex topics, and many online arguments may well be avoided, or at least be more educated if all parties read a primer on how well-known grids like the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, function, and how Bitcoin mining can interact with these markets or specific pieces of electrical infrastructure from a power system's perspective. Part one of this series will focus on generators and Bitcoin mining's relationship to their operation and function within the power system. But readers should know that concepts found in this article are generalized and simplified to give an introduction to grids, not an exhaustive study of them. Grids are incredibly complex systems, and engineers spend entire careers working on only one small aspect of their operation. Grids are also a marvel of technological coordination that carries all the mathematical complexity, tariff law, and political baggage that one can imagine. With all that in mind, let's get started. What are generators? A power system is a collection of power sources, or generators, paths, transmission, and sinks, or loads, which must operate at a high level of reliability and within the bounds of physics. Generators are the sources of the power and thus generate power that must be delivered to loads through the pathways available to them. The power must be consumed immediately by the load upon generation unless it is stored using energy storage technology. To manage this process of matching real-time generation with load by way of paths available, a central authority or grid operator normally uses a mathematical algorithm to identify the most economic, the cheapest, and most reliable, able to still operate in events where you lose an element, manner of operating the grid. In layman's terms, this means fancy math is used to determine the best combination of generator output across the system to serve load, while keeping any single element from not being overloaded in case something fails or trips. Below is a simple image illustrating the difference between sources of power, generators, Paths of power, transmission lines and substations, and sinks of power, or loads, residential load in the case of the image. Transmission and distribution are usually differentiated by voltage level, but both are paths through with power flows. ERCOT and other ISOs normally only operate on transmission level voltages, and distribution companies manage those lower voltage levels. Sources of generation have traditionally been thermal generators, mostly coal, natural gas, and nuclear power plants that expend fuel to boil water and generate steam, which is used to move a turbine to generate power. Recently, solar and wind have become an increasing percentage of the generation mix. These facilities operate passively based on the weather and rely heavily on solar and wind forecasting to predict their output. Today, generation developers are companies that specialize in sitting and interconnecting generators to the power system. These companies focus on understanding what the future of the grid will look like and how they can develop generation infrastructure to capture value. Generator-owner-operators are companies that specialize in owning and operating the generators once they have been built. Sometimes generation developers also own and operate the facilities they develop, And sometimes they sell them to others. High power prices are the primary signal for generation developers or investors to build more generators. Recent tax legislation has become another signal which has spurred development in solar, wind, and storage as investors aim to capitalize on the large tax windfalls from building these types of facilities. ERCOT is the nonprofit entity that operates the Texas grid, which accounts for 90% of the electric load in Texas. The name of the grid is also ERCOT. I know, it's confusing. ERCOT owns no wires, substations, or generators, but rather are the manager of the system. This means that ERCOT has special responsibilities for planning the system, handling the actual transactions, and operating the market in real time. ERCOT has a quote, deregulated market, which means that different entities must own different portions of the industry. No transmission owner can also own generation, etc. Power generators are privately funded in ERCOT, and ERCOT generators operate in one of two distinct categories, or markets, energy and ancillary services. Here are the basics of the energy market. All generators produce and submit to ERCOT, hereafter referred to as the grid operator. A bid curve, which serves as an indication of how much money they would need to spend in order to produce a megawatt of power. For instance, an offline coal facility needs the grid price to be at a certain dollar per megawatt hour value before it comes online, aka starts generating power, in order for them to break even on their costs associated with turning it on. Once online, the plant needs a marginal bit of more money to pay for a marginal bit more fuel to ramp up production a marginal bit more, and so on. The resulting bid curve represents the marginal cost, or the dollar value required to produce the next megawatt of power. This ends up looking like a curve starting at the facility's minimum output and going up and to the right, as thermals need more fuel to produce more power. Unlike thermal generators, wind and solar are passive energy sources with a production cost of zero, meaning that their marginal cost to produce the next megawatt is also zero dollars, a flat line at zero instead of a curve going up. With the tax incentives for renewable energies referenced in the introduction to this article, some renewable energies can become negatively priced, meaning a generator receiving certain tax benefits could get 26 dollars per megawatt hour credit just for being online and will therefore bid negative 25 dollars per megawatt hour instead of zero dollars per megawatt hour into the market and capture one dollar per megawatt hour even though the grid price is reflecting their negative bid negative 25. since renewables bid zero dollars or even negative into this market This is often why they are referenced as, quote, cheaper than thermal generators. Confused yet? Let's keep going. Grid operators generally dispatch generation, meaning they order a generator's output to a specific level, starting with the lowest marginal cost generators, and then move in the direction of the highest cost generations by working through the bid stack. Operators also optimize, and therefore set the grid price, something called constraints not just the cheapest generation but typically in any local area the cheapest generation is dispatched first and the bid stack is incrementally worked through upward to dispatch enough generation to match the forecasted amount of load on the system eventually operators will climb the bid stack until they reach a total number of generators who collectively will provide the amount of power needed to meet demand for the given time interval It is crucial to note that a generator's marginal cost data, the values they submit as part of their bid curve, do not contain profit or information about the capital deployed to build the generation facility. It only communicates variable cost, like fuel cost and regular maintenance. The entity sitting at the top of this bid stack during any interval who provides the final most expensive megawatt hour sets the grid price for all generators for that interval. And so they are sometimes called the price setter. Because wind and solar both bid the market at zero dollars, they are in contrast often called a price taker. This is because these energy sources who bid zero dollars never plan on being the marginal cost unit, the one at the top of the bid stack. If they did, then everyone would be paid $0 per megawatt for their energy, and no one would make any money. There is a whole field of study regarding how power system markets will work when renewables start to set the price, which this author will dutifully ignore in this article for the sake of time. We are omitting constraints here in favor of simplicity, but just know that generally, this is how it works. This dispatching process normally ends up looking like the graph below, where power generators below the market clearing price, gray line, and to the left of the demand curve, blue line, are turned on and get paid the clearing price, gray line, for their energy. Generators above the market clearing price and to the right of the demand curve stay offline. This process runs continuously throughout the day, redispatching generation based on expected load levels. So the graphic isn't super important, but it's just kind of showing that as you move up and to the right, you're looking at um, different power generation sources and their relative price. So obviously renewables are first because they have a quote unquote generation price of zero dollars. And then you would see nuclear at a slightly higher level and then coal and then gas and then the peak units on the far right of the curve. Basically, however high the market price is determines which one of these gets cut on and which one of these are off. Obviously, I'll have a link in the show notes so you can check it out. Decisions about whether to build a new generation asset are made after careful research and power system modeling by engineers, like this author, to understand what the expected future price at a specific generation location on the grid will be. These price models give no certainty. So in some regards, they're akin to using a very powerful, precise, but inevitably inaccurate crystal ball to foresee market conditions, transmission upgrades, future retirements, load growth, and other generation competition. For example, if a company expects natural gas to become the price setter for the local area and they're planning a solar farm, They now have to analyze whether or not the price set by the natural gas generator will be enough to recoup the capital cost of the solar farm. So while solar generators might bid $0 into the market, that does not mean that capital expenses can be paid back at the price of $0 per megawatt hour. Enough about energy generators. Let's move on to the second category. Ancillary service providers. Aside from simply producing enough energy to match demand, grid operators need to be able to maintain a constant frequency of 60 hertz. In real power systems, frequency is actually a dependent variable of many things on a network, and thus maintaining it and keeping the system afloat is of the utmost importance. Frequency crashes can lead to blackouts, which can mean weeks or months without power. Readers can see ERCOT real-time frequency and inspect the different types of ancillary services and their deployment here. To maintain frequency, grid operators buy and reserve, ahead of time, ancillary services from generators and loads that are able to rapidly increase or decrease their output. By rapidly increasing output, a generator can increase system frequency. By rapidly decreasing their output, a generator can decrease system frequency. Grid operators have a certain, quote, amount of megawatts they need to buy or reserve ahead of time to ensure that they have enough firepower online to deploy, order up or down, during real time to maintain frequency through the day. When real time comes, grid operators deploy these procured reserves to manage frequency fluctuations during the day. This frequency market is separate from the energy generation market. There are two markets. The energy market in which generation is turned on or matched with expected load or demand and ancillary services in which frequency is maintained around 60 Hertz to keep the system operational and avoid blackouts. The energy market is the big heavy dial The ancillary services market is the small precise dial. Certain types of loads can also provide ancillary services, and this is where Bitcoin mining, often cited as a grid balancing agent, comes into the picture. What do generators have to do with Bitcoin? After the basic explanation of energy generators and ancillary services above, it's appropriate to revisit the same topics while adding Bitcoin in the explanation to understand the role that mining can play for the grid. This section describes miners who are exposed to nodal pricing or wholesale pricing, the same type of pricing that generators receive. This price goes through a couple layers of hedging, aggregation, and abstraction before it gets to industrial loads or residential consumers. These layers are why residential customers are able to pay flat rates. But ERCOT has special rules on the horizon that would allow some transmission-level loads, such as Bitcoin miners, to receive nodal pricing directly. For now, though, most Bitcoin miners are exposed to nodal pricing through PPAs and some fancy arbitrage. All of these details can get hairy quickly. So, for educational purposes, readers can assume that everything described here about miners getting variable pricing is, or could be, if miners were to act rationally, true. Quick math for miners. All right, let's pause right there for just a second and talk about stacking sats with Swan Bitcoin. Now, the reason I send people to Swan Bitcoin is not because I have a referral link. I mean, that helps, but I sent them to SWAN before I had a referral link, and then I'd also send them to SWAN after I didn't have a referral link. And it's just because SWAN Bitcoin is its the sweet spot for what you need to learn, to save, to automatically stack, to not get distracted by shitcoins to not panic sell on some red candles only to see it jump right back up the next day, to not be pressured into gambling your value away on tokenized bullshit and chart chasing. It is literally the service that will encourage you to withdraw, that will let you set it up automatically so you are always holding your own keys and even pay the on-chain fees to get them into your ownership. It is the service for buying Bitcoin if you are a real Bitcoiner. That's that's what it's built for. That's what it's built around. It is that simple. And they have now they have the Bitcoin Cannon uh, with the Rabbit Hole Collections. It's one of the best collections of curated content from the top Bitcoiners in the space anywhere. I don't think there is a better one, in my opinion. Um, and they put that together in no time. Uh, swanbitcoin.com slash guy is my link uh, that will actually support the show and let them know that I sent you there. You stack automatically. They give you peace of mind, you hold your keys, and you prepare for our bright orange future. swanbitcoin.com guy guy. StackSats, bitch. Alright, let's jump back in. Quick math for miners. A fun exercise for Bitcoin mining machines is to calculate their dollar per megawatt hour rate. Similar to how all generators have a bid curve, which they must submit to grid operators, Bitcoin mining machines can be abstracted into a dollar-per-megawatt-hour value that they turn energy into. This number is also sometimes referred to as their break-even price, since if the machines were being fed with electricity that cost that amount, they would stop being profitable. The tables below show some back-of-the-napkin math using a hash price of $0.22, to determine what the dollar per megawatt hour rate would be for various mining machine models. This math includes some extra steps in order to find what quantity of machines would be needed to constitute one megawatt of load. Without reading this whole chart, I'm just going to read the dollar per kilowatt hour price of the different models. So the S9 is $0.09 per kilowatt hour. The M31S Plus is $0.22 per kilowatt hour, and the S19 Pro is $0.31 per kilowatt hour. The math for determining the break-even price without a machine count is a bit simpler. So what does this have to do with the grid? There are two key takeaways. Bitcoin enters the bid stack. Remember that generators are dispatched in order of their marginal cost. Cheaper generators are dispatched first, and more expensive generators are dispatched last, if at all. Load resources can also register with a grid operator, receive a small payment, and be part of this bid stack as well, not just generation. But instead of adding to the generation side of the market, this load works as a tool to decrease the expected load target. From the tables above, the Antminer S9s have a break-even cost of about $90 per megawatt hour, or $0.09 per kilowatt hour. By participating in the market as load resources, Bitcoin miners coordinate with grid operators in ways similar to generators. But instead of ramping up generation, they power down load demand in response to wholesale pricing. The result is that the miners' flexibility push the marginal price of power downward for the grid. Put differently, they do not push the marginal price higher than their break-even price. Continuing to use miners with S9 machines as an example, here's how the grid affects their operations. As Ercot operators work up the bid stack and turn on generation until it matches expected load, they face two options when they reach the $90 marginal cost range. Option 1. Order Bitcoin miners participating as load resources with a marginal cost of $90 to turn off. Or Option 2. Order generators with a marginal cost of $91 to turn on, so load resources with less than $91 marginal cost, i.e. miners running S9s, can continue operating. This scenario comes with a few caveats. First, generators are required to respond to orders from grid operators or face fines. If the grid doesn't function with consistent mathematical precision and transparent coordination, bad things happen. With the ability to modify the grid in a material way as a generator or load balancer comes great responsibility. Secondly, for Bitcoin miners, adjusting load in response to price signals is currently an opt-in situation, where miners are paid for participating regardless of whether or not they are actually dispatched in real time. This means the example Bitcoin miner with the S9s will get paid even if they don't have to turn off. But if a miner is exposed to nodal pricing, for example, they face the choice of either paying the $91 to make $90 or shut off, powering down when prices aren't economical is simply a rational way to participate in the market, just like generators that do not turn on unless it is economical for them to do so. Okay, caveats aside, back to the two options listed above. What's the best deal for minimizing the total cost of the system? Effectively, any type of load that is exposed to wholesale pricing that can turn off during times of high pricing will turn off. For example, steel fabricators have been shutting down in response to market pricing for a while. And this same behavior applies to Bitcoin miners. Any miners that don't want to be online when pricing is uneconomical won't be. So, why is Bitcoin mining special? Bitcoin miners are unique because of how fast, transparent, and flexible their response can be to pricing fluctuations. Riot's Windstone Mining Farm in Texas is a perfect example of miners powering down during tight conditions in ERCOT. During winter storms in February 2022, the site powered down 99% of its operations to reduce load. This flexibility made headlines. Now imagine if ERCOT had visibility of every miner over 10 megawatts that's connected to the transmission network. The price at which the machines break even would then become an integral aspect of wholesale power pricing— Because the Bitcoin miners themselves can set the wholesale price. Consider a high pricing situation where marginal power prices climb to $90 per megawatt hour and Bitcoin miners in Houston who are running some S9s are then ordered to turn off. Remember, they wouldn't want to be online anyways and they get paid by ERCOT just for being available for powering down at higher prices. By turning off... Let's say these miners actually allow load to match generation, and they therefore become price setters, setting the marginal price for the entire ERCOT system. All generators then get $90 per megawatt hour for that interval, assuming no constraints, because that price is how much Bitcoin a megawatt of S9s could have produced with that marginal megawatt. Bitcoin became a price-setter. Imagine further that the Bitcoin miners with the S9s would submit something like this graph below to ERCOT, where instead of a bid curve, they offer to reduce their megawatt load by a certain amount depending on the grid price. This would be the opposite of the previously mentioned generator bid curve, where marginal load reduction is offered instead of marginal power generation. And, of course, it's not difficult to imagine a miner who isn't only running S9s, but who also has a diverse portfolio of machines with an array of break-even prices. This type of paradigm will certainly drive cheaper ASICs hard, and thermal cycling will become a real concern for the machines. But what else? This is still adding load to a system, right? Kind of a a push-you-off-a-ledge-but-then-catch-you-before-you-fall-and-claim-to-save-your-life type of deal. So, in a place like ERCOT, where the market is tight already, 90 megawatts per hour is incredibly expensive. But Bitcoin mining can do something else extremely well. Miners solidify generation revenue forecasting. Attentive readers will remember from earlier in this article how generation developers rely on engineers like this author to run sophisticated and not-so-accurate models to forecast pricing that determines if a location is lucrative enough to build a generator. Also remember that ERCOT prices are considered price signals for new generation, which makes them inherently lagging indicators of load growth, they could underwrite new generation build-outs. So what if new generation development could be underwritten in part with Bitcoin as a co-located off-taker, buyer of some amount of energy? Instead of having to solely rely on grid pricing for revenue, new generators could buy off-take insurance It enables them to contract with a Bitcoin miner if their grid pricing forecasts turned out to be bust. This would present an incredibly novel tool for de-risking generation development, allowing generators to bring their off-taker, their buyer of energy, a Bitcoin miner, with them to a new site. For renewable generators, this is especially enticing. A 200-megawatt nameplate solar or wind farm could see large gains by co-locating with a much smaller Bitcoin mine, for example 30-40 to megawatts, who just pulls grid energy whenever the solar or wind farm are not generating enough to meet their needs. This co-located mine could produce enough revenue for the generator to shore up financing – while still allowing for 160 to 170 megawatts of nameplate capacity to the grid during peak hours, all while still bidding zero dollars. The economics are slightly different for thermal generation, for example, natural gas, since per the current marginal cost paradigm, the marginal cost of the thermally produced megawatts supplied to the grid after serving the co-located mine would technically be more expensive than those megawatts first supplied to the mine. Recall how the normal bid curve is up and to the right, as thermals require more fuel to produce more power. This isn't to say that renewables are better, as all generation types have their trade-offs, but rather a highlighting of the implications of flat, $0 marginal cost generation. Current financing paradigms for generation asset development aren't ready for this type of underwriting. Most companies developing generation have a rigid and conservative set of requirements, and Bitcoin is just too novel of a technology to fit this hole as of now. However, the paradigm shift is here, and generation developers that are willing to be the first to leverage this model will certainly reap the rewards. I expect that this model of co-location to improve financing will hit existing generators first, since they have no downside to trying something new if they are already missing revenue targets. Advanced. Are you seeing with Bitcoin mining? This section explores more advanced implications of generators partnering with miners. In certain situations where the grid operator knows that the real-time conditions in the immediate future will be tight, not much margin between available generation and expected demand, the grid operator will RUC, Reliability Unit Commit, Thermal Generating Units, whereby the grid operator orders certain thermal generators to be online, running at their minimum, and thus available to be dispatched up if needed. Since generators take time to come online, having them ready and online is an extra conservative approach to operations planning. This is different from standard procedure since normally those generators decide themselves when to be available via their bid curves and their COP, Current Operating Plan. Earlier in this article, grid operators were described as generation dispatchers, but that's only half true. Generators actually tell the grid operator when they will be online and available. Thus, once generators are online and available, the generator must follow dispatch orders from the operator. When the grid operator RUCs the unit, the operator has to pay a premium to the generator to be online and available a premium to what the economic conditions of the grid forecast, else the generator would have decided to turn its cell phone. With co-located Bitcoin mining, a generator would always have an incentive to be online and available, and thus would make RUCing a thing of the past, and move the cost burden of RUCing away from the consumer and onto the co-located Bitcoin miner. Environmentalists would probably not like the idea of running thermal units more, but they couldn't deny that moving RUC costs away from the consumer and onto the Bitcoin miner would reduce consumer-facing costs associated with RUCs while improving reliability. Mining as an ancillary service The ancillary service's potential of Bitcoin mining is a bit more straightforward than the generation aspect. since most readers are likely familiar with the narrative of Bitcoin mining providing grid balancing. To quickly recap ancillary services, after grid operators ensure via the energy market that they have enough generation to match demand for any interval, they also need to regulate the frequency on the grid, as it oscillates between 59.5 and 60.5 Hertz. For context, a grid's frequency is always oscillating within this band as operators on a real system work to match generation and load. Traditionally, keeping the frequency within the bands of this range is done by leveraging generators that are able to quickly ramp up or down their output, and also, for certain acute or fast, events, by big loads that are hooked up to relays such that they immediately drop if the relay senses a frequency event. The chart below is an example of a generator-forced outage i.e. a generator tripped or was forced offline for some other unplanned reason that caused frequency to dip, the blue line, resulting in load resources, for example potential Bitcoin miners, the green line, immediately responding by tripping themselves and restoring the grid's frequency. Bitcoin's place as a grid resource is pretty clear. Large, flexible loads that have the ability to pay themselves to be online and respond immediately to frequency events is a new asset class for the power system. So what exactly does this look like? Besides just responding to acute events by dropping load in ERCOT, ancillary services are currently sold in the day ahead, meaning the day before operations, Miners who can qualify to provide these types of services by proving that they can ramp up or down and follow instructions quickly will sell their capacity in an auction. The grid operator will buy the services, which forces the miners to reserve those megawatts during their operation the following day. During real time, the miner may be called upon to ramp up or down to fulfill their obligation depending on which type of service they sold. Firmware that allows the mining machines to be ramped up and down while minimizing long-term harm to the machines would be an incredible tool for the power system. But the extent to which ASIC mining machines can or will incorporate this type of ramping capability is unclear. As briefly mentioned above, thermal cycling will likely be a limit to how often miners can ramp up or down to move frequency around for operators. This author expects that eventually, mining companies will pop up specifically to perform this type of service using extremely old machines and pairing them with generators that are unable to perform this service on their own, renewables or nukes. That way, they can make use of the already existing electrical infrastructure and split revenue with a generator that is already well-versed in electrical markets. Frequency regulation is a double edged sword. Even though this author is very bullish on the integration of Bitcoin mining machines into the power system, placing such concentrated rampable loads on the system also creates risk. One risk is unclear operating schedules. If Bitcoin miners are not transparently sharing their operating schedule or bid curve information with the grid operator, The operator has no knowledge of when and by how much Bitcoin miners will turn off or turn on throughout the day. And because transmission-level connected large miners are not treated with the same scrutiny as generators, they are currently not required to share this operation schedule or submit a bid curve to grid operators. Changing load in a drastic manner affects frequency, which can cause blackouts large miners that ramp up or down their output have an outsized effect on the grid as their output can drastically affect system frequency and the speed at which the frequency changes. With more load ramping, more ancillary services will need to be procured to ensure that the grid operator has enough firepower to manage frequency during real-time operations. But how much ancillary services need to be reserved to handle Bitcoin miners turning off and on. Grid operators won't know unless the miners give them an idea of how they plan to operate. Grid operators are already having to procure more resources due to renewable penetration, but Bitcoin miners who don't transparently operate present another reason for the grid to procure or buy more ancillary services resources to regulate frequency in real time. This problem will likely be solved with new rules and additional incentives. Bitcoin miners operating at significant size that interconnect on the transmission network will likely face interconnection rules and responsibilities that more closely resemble existing rules for generators, not rules for loads. For example, Bitcoin miners will have to prove that they have redundancies in their network connections, such that a faulty cable won't drop their entire load. Miners could also have to submit operation schedules or bid curves, and they could face penalties for not behaving in accordance with their schedule or bid curve, penalties which would in turn be used to pay for more ancillary services. For their service, the miners will likely be allowed to take nodal pricing and avoid pesky transmission, delivery, and coincident peak charges that would add to their all-in cost. Miners connected at a distribution level will likely not face the same scrutiny, but they also won't be exposed to the same pricing incentives and rates as those transmission-connected miners. Conclusion Congratulations for making it this far. The goal for this article and the entire series about the grid is to develop among Bitcoiners a better understanding of how modern grids are managed and operated so that creative miners and enthusiasts can think of new ways to marry these two industries. Hopefully, this piece provides some useful insight into how ERCOT works and increases the reader's appreciation for how much potential Bitcoin mining has to change the power industry. Many topics discussed in this article are generalized for the sake of simplicity, and most of the above sections probably deserve 50 pages of their own analysis. Topics like curtailment, negative pricing, and others are also important pieces of the puzzle presented by Bitcoin miners, and these will all be addressed in subsequent articles. This article was written for the Brains blog by Blake King. Blake is a power engineer who builds and analyzes software models of electric grids. His views here do not reflect those of any of his past, present, or future employers. Follow Blake on Twitter. And you definitely, definitely should do that. Um, I just started following Blake as soon as I stumbled upon this article. I am stoked about this series. Uh, this is just fascinating stuff. And it's so cool to see like, almost like a boots on the ground. Like, it's like somebody within the system talking about how Bitcoin miners are actually being used. Because this is something that has been discussed among Bitcoiners in a very general sense for a very, very long time, about how this, because it is time-independent, because you can ramp up and ramp down the load on the network, seeing how this can actually integrate specifically into the system, albeit in a very simplified manner, but I mean, how would you ever know the the deep specifics of the mining grid of something that is, you know, its own industries of industries, Uh, because it is such a complex thing. It's like, you know, internet infrastructure and like the level of complexity, like it's, it's one of those things that you spend, you could spend your entire life learning about and you're always gonna learn one additional trick or one new way of thinking about it. And where what you're looking at, what you're analyzing or thinking about is something novel within the industry, something that truly is changing how the industry works in in to such a degree actually that it's not being taken advantage of because it's being seen as something almost alien to the way things are done you know it's interesting to to hear it in that way because it's not something the the fundamental infrastructure really hasn't seen you know this massive information age disruption That so much of our lives and so much of the front facing and consumer industry and the communications technology has seen, you know, a lot of these things, the way they've been doing it is the way they've been doing it for a century, you know, drilling oil and uh, load balancing and all of this stuff. I mean, obviously there have been incremental changes, but it feels like Bitcoin is something that is unique enough to really change how you think about the problem. There was there was a line from this really stood out to me is that most companies' current financing paradigms for generation asset development aren't ready for this type of underwriting. Most companies developing generation have a rigid and conservative set of requirements, and Bitcoin is just too novel of a technology to fit this hole as of now. However, the paradigm shift is here, and generation developers that are willing to be the first to leverage this model will certainly reap the rewards. I expect that this model of co-location to improve financing will hit existing generators first since they have no downside to trying something new if they are already missing revenue targets. Just the idea of being able to bring your financing with you as a generator to to co-locate a contract with Bitcoin miners that can pick up shop and plop down wherever you are, wherever the, the... the energy generation is, and basically set a price floor and a threshold to, to essentially balance the price of energy, where when it's too low, it can take advantage of it by amping up more demand, and where it's too high by ramping down and, uh, and providing a, a, a move to uh, pressure the price lower and overall it will have a price lowering effect simply because the profitability of all of the energy generation will be higher if there is always an energy buyer of last resort so it's a, it's a stabilizer it's like a it's like a an independent pricing mechanism that puts pressure in both directions but in doing so it makes the entire system more reliable but i found it interesting actually the way he ended this because i never really thought about the fact that bitcoin miners that aren't working with the grid operator can actually be a problem because they can ramp up and ramp down so if the energy prices actually fluctuate a little bit you might have you know megawatts of bitcoin miners cut off that the grid operator doesn't even know or that is because it is so time or you know cost independent um not cost independent but but uh um because it can be ramped up and down at such a quick rate and because the the profitability is the only indicator as to whether or not you actually need to run it if you're not using mining for something else, like like I intend to have two S9s to heat the basement, right? Um, so I won't really care what the profitability of it is because that's not why I'm running it, I'm using it for heat. But obviously miners, as uh, as a critical part of the grid, as as we're using this as a grid balancer, will not be playing that game. They will be playing the game of, if it's $91 per megawatt hour, they are not going to run at $90. They're not going to take a dollar loss. They're going to shut off their machines. But when that happens, the demand goes away. There's going to be a huge, there'll be a frequency dip um, or, or what would that be? A frequency spike, I believe. I don't know. Is it Whatever. It's something that the, the grid operator then has to account for because it is kind of this natural balancer that even outside of working with the grid operator could You know ramp up the frequent like in the context of the ancillary services the the fine tuning dial could actually cause problems if the grid operator doesn't even know that it's there so that's really interesting because I had never really thought about that I don't know you know I know this from the context of Bitcoin mining and just kind of the general concepts of oh a load balancer oh uh, a on-demand generation oh a co-location with financing of course if you have an energy buyer that doesn't even need transmission lines that can set up with the energy generation straight out the gate, you've got an incredible financing tool. You've basically got insurance for uh, for energy generation because, it, you know, I think it was, we were talking about it with um, Suttuk, Suttuk, Harry Suddick, uh from, where is he from? He's from like, I think it's Grid or whatever. I don't know. But he, he was talking about how um, he told a story about how uh, there was uh, they were working with a I believe it was a grid operator on uh, basically planning out new generation, new energy generation for a a particular area of a grid because a massive, a really big hospital was coming in, which is a huge, huge load on the network, and obviously they needed to be there to to balance it out, to be able to turn generation on etc. when this thing was needed. I mean the capacity simply wasn't there and so they had to build all this out and they were planning this for years and constructing all of this stuff and then like something happened and the hospital contract basically fell out. Like it just like the whole thing the whole thing went kaput and now this miner, excuse me this this energy source this energy producer now had no customer. They were now screwed. Their financing was shit out of luck. They had no option because they were now moving into an area that basically had no customers they were they were basically now guaranteed to be in a place where the marginal energy cost was below the cost of production what happened bitcoin miners were able to come in and make that financing possible again make that a profitable endeavor and therefore expand and make the reliability of that grid far more viable and if a hospital ends up coming back, if another project does happen in a couple of years, they're essentially ready for it, and those miners can pick up shop and go where they need to go for the next financing arrangement to bolster, uh, to to basically be that that insurance, that that financing package for for the energy generation in another area. So it's like a backup plan, or it could be Plan A uh you know waiting for plan B to actually come about as an area is expected to grow in the future because forecasting this stuff is clearly difficult i mean like how would you be able to it almost seems insane that the system works at all uh and it, it makes sense that you would have like these these dual layers these dual markets of systems that where you have wholesale pricing and then ancillary services in order to Uh, basically smooth all of the chaos of the energy generation out, especially as you add more and more renewables to the network, which are, which are passive generators and are an incredibly unreliable source of energy. So they, you know, the, the swings in their generation, you're, you're kind of, it, it seems like, unless I'm understanding this wrong, it kind of seems like you're, you're looking at something that's kind of the opposite of Bitcoin as a load that ramps up and ramps down is that, you're you're having to you know use the weatherman to predict how much energy you're going to have tomorrow, and that shit might just not turn out. There are many times where I brought an umbrella and didn't need an umbrella, so it's interesting to see how these things, how these changes in both the production and the load are putting stressors on the on the grid, but also helping to ramp up its robustness and. Uh, become like a financial and economic backstop um, specifically in Bitcoin mining an economic backstop to to keep the grid uh, productive or or to keep the grid profitable Um, and it's also interesting you know he talked about like I think this was in the ancillary services section if I'm not mistaken but how like oh as the as the prices fluctuate um, like so I encourage you to go check out like the charts that he actually has produced uh uh in the in the setup because there's like this, you know, equilibrium price or whatever and there's like this kind of stair step of what the marginal cost of each new energy unit is versus the cost of uh versus what the cost of electricity is or the demand of electricity is uh so that, you know, the thermal because the thermal energy can be like ramped up uh, far more quickly or is more reliable. It's on-demand energy in a sense, even though it takes an enormous amount of time. And uh, there's a th- certain thresholds where it needs to cover the gap to actually be turned on. You know, you can't have, have like ten extra watts of demand and turn on a you know natural gas uh, miners, uh, uh, energy producer or something. But um, regardless, it's interesting to kind of just see the chart to have the visual of the next these these next like kind of plateaus of energy price that that begin to ramp up these quote-unquote thermal generators like natural gas, like coal, um, and all of these other uh, energy generators to meet the demand and when it is that they get cut on and when they stay off, but that they're actually contracted by the grid operators to run at a minimum just so they are there when they are needed. And... Really interesting is that if you're producing more energy than you need, you specifically don't need the natural gas miner yet. Like I'm curious, I'd be very curious to know what level of that load is actually economic at all. Like, like what if they're being paid a premium to to essentially have that on? It would. It would basically denote that it's not profitable energy at the time. They're having to essentially subsidize it to make sure that they're not losing out when the demand does fluctuate and they can ramp up the methane gas production. But what's funny is that Bitcoin is actually, Bitcoin mining is actually a natural subsidy to keep the thing running in place of needing to be paid a premium by the grid. But obviously you would need the grid operator to kind of know that's kind of where you run back into the ramp up, ramp down problem where you have, massive fluctuation that the grid operator doesn't know about so they don't they don't know how many ancillary services they need to purchase so it's almost like the more bitcoin miners that they don't know about on the grid the more they would have to hire bitcoin miners to act as ancillary services to counter to counter the bitcoin miners that they don't know about on the grid so that's that's kind of funny because it's it's both a problem and the solution by being uh, by being a load balancer on the network. Um, but it's just it's just really, really fascinating. And to pair this with the, a piece that I'm reading right now, uh, the report, the Bitcoin net zero from Nick Carter and uh, uh, Rus- uh, R- Russell, um, Stephen, Stephen Ross from NIDIG. It's a really, really great report about basically just looking at renewables, just looking at something like solar and wind and how Bitcoin mining affects those from a number of different perspectives, but also just in the kind of energy buyer of last resort situation. So you're talking about like the financing and the the ability to co-locate, you know, building out transmission lines to some sort of uh, renewable energy source is no longer the deciding factor as to whether or not the whether or not that energy production can actually find a buyer and as we move into more and more advanced asics and we get into these older machines that's like kind of the perfect thing that i think will kind of make a lot of these things viable again or um god i'm losing my voice uh, have uh like kind of a stronger backstop on some of this because because you kind of commoditize you, you you essentially have incredibly cheap hardware and ultimately the energy cost is the sole deciding factor um, like for instance like that's really why I'm going to be able to heat my basement with Bitcoin miners is because I can get S9s for really cheap in fact when I'm thinking about how to get this done i i haven't done like strict comparison I, I really want to do like watt for watt comparison to how much heat i can get out of an s9 versus how much heat i can get out of my unit but like my heating unit you know it would cost like three grand maybe five grand i i don't even know it would cost me thirty four hundred dollars i think to replace my condenser when my ac broke so I mean, I would have to assume it's somewhere in that range, even though I haven't really like looked at the market specifically or looked at a product. But I would love to compare the heat efficiency of it just flat. Like if I wasn't getting any SATs out of my miner at all, how much does it cost to produce, produce, you know, how many I guess BTUs of heat purely from a set of A ASICs uh in comparison to uh you know gas furnace because those are in any way comparable and i'm able to get uh, bitcoin out of the s9 it almost seems from an economic standpoint to be stupid not to do that and you know maybe i'm i have a very naive perspective of it right now i haven't looked i haven't really dug into the specifics but like you know how long if it does cost me three thousand dollars to do the alternative to do like a, a furnace thing and it only costs me $800 to get two S9s and I can legitimately heat the basement with that, how long does that take for it to be, even if it's twice the price to run the S9 to get the same amount of heat, how long does it take to make up a you know $2,200 difference? And what's the Bitcoin worth that I get out of that for the length of time? Like I'm not worried... My goal isn't to pay off the S9s. The S9s are my heater. Um this is a little bit this is a little bit sidetracked from this article specifically, but it just it's crazy to think how much this could change. A a couple of fundamental characteristics of Bitcoin mining that because it can scale to such a degree, because it can so quickly ramp up and ramp down, because it is time independent it doesn't matter when it is needed or not needed and because it is an, an immediate an, an immediate and direct buyer of energy I don't know it's just it's just really crazy it's just really crazy to keep watching this unfold and you know I think bitcoin mining is going to be one of the most important things on the energy grid I I really do um and you know, I don't work in the energy production sector, but it seems like the intelligent people who do work directly in it seem to share that thought. And, you know, one of the things that he starts off with in this article that I just love that we just so, so take for granted. Um, you know, I'm just going to read it again just because it's, it's that great. Um, and it really is. It's just fascinating. Um, water generators, blah, blah, blah. Where are you? Come on. Okay, the most impressive characteristic of Bitcoin mining is the mining algorithm. More beautiful than the math and theory behind the issuance and difficulty adjustments themselves is the fact that it all actually works. That mining death spirals don't occur. That there is a global distribution of hash rate competing for power infrastructure and cheap rates. It's amazing. What was once cypherpunks competing with laptops in the late 2000s is now an incredible ecosystem of radically different business models. Hosting and licensing, on-grid proprietary behemoths, generator joint ventures, off-grid natural gas, and even pig manure. And I just think that we, we really do take take it for granted now that, you know, Bitcoin has just worked, but think about how, how crazy this shit is. It really is kind of kind of nuts that this thing works at the level of 5 laptops competing to you know exchange pennies between each other in 2009 and 2010 and achieve consensus on a network with so few people. That this proof of work, that this descendant of hashcash and a simple spam mechanism could create a system so massive, that could create one that ended up being global, that has survived multiple now, complete havings in the revenue stream, that is now that is now in very serious it is operating directly with grid operators that is financing massive uh energy generation systems that is capping flared methane all over the planet and that it has every potential ahead of it to be a major grid balancer that can bolster both the profitability of disparate energy sources and the reliability of the grid itself at a global scale, I just, it, it never ceases to amaze me that this thing has just kind of popped up and continues. <laughs> you know? Like, I don't know. It's it's so crazy. Proof of work is such a fascinating thing. I, I highly recommend uh, Hugo Huin's Anatomy of Proof of Work. Uh, it's probably a great one to go back to in reference to this or in... You know, taking this perspective and going back and thinking about what proof of work is explicitly. I'm going to pause the music, start recording or whatever, and I just have my music in here, and so it just starts playing in the background. But it's also neat to see this stuff happen in action. You know, so the Windstone uh, riots, and this was actually something in one of the part of the notes that I have for my Bitcoin Dominoes thing, uh, riots Windstone Mining Farm in Texas. This is a quote, by the way, from uh, Blake. So, Riot's Windstone Mining Farm in Texas is a perfect example of miners powering down during tight conditions in ERCOT. During winter storms in February 2022, the site powered down 99% of its operations to reduce load. This flexibility made headlines. Now imagine if ERCOT has visibility of every miner over 10 megawatts that's connected to the transmission network. The price at which the machines break even would then become an integral aspect of wholesale power pricing, because the Bitcoin miners themselves can set the wholesale price. Bitcoin mining can set the wholesale price of energy. Like, think about what that does to the profitability to the lower cost forms of energy, if. There is always a marginal price setter, even when their production is high. The greater the economic load that the profitable load that can be maintained when demand is low, when otherwise demand is low, when consumer demand is low, the better the profitability of the cheaper forms of energy production. And maybe I'm 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 certain that I'm missing a hundred different little pieces of this puzzle because I have such a all i have is a general overview of how this works or just kind of the concepts behind it but i feel like this has to be a massive boon to to far more to to the far cheaper sources of energy like nuclear like solar like hydro specifically renewables that are typically less reliable in how they produce energy and also specifically in the new investments in these things in these sorts of production because the miners as as he detailed out in this the miners can literally be packaged with the financing agreements for the beginning or for the the ability to actually forecast to have a set ability to forecast the the profitability the the income that could come from adding additional generation to the grid and you know this is this is an entirely new space like 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 he said like this is novel the people who take advantage of this are going to be rewarded for being open to adaption to to adapting to this new space to the new elements that are now part of the ecosystem you know when when the environment is changing drastically when the tools in the environment are changing you know, everybody always talks about, oh, the strongest survive. No, the strongest do not survive. The most adaptable survive. And this is the sort of era that we are going through right now. Those who adapt will be rewarded massively. And I'll add here again, because this is, I just love this quote. This is the an amazing quote that I've used n- numerous times now from Sovereign Mindset's Twitter thread that we did during Adversarial Week, because he had a really great thread. I'll link to it in the show notes, actually. But never underestimate your butterfly effect this is a new frontier there are a million problems to solve do not be afraid of tackling something of learning something new of trying something new because this is exactly the sort of time where pioneers where the reward is greatest where the opportunity is greatest where the pioneers can take a simple idea and actually, change everything because everything is ripe for change. Everything is in a position where the old way of doing things is no longer, is suddenly suboptimal because of a new environment or a new tooling within the system. This is where the opportunities lie. While the current walls are crumbling, yes, it's scary, yes, it's chaotic, but the current systems are ripe for disruption that is what's happening they are crumbling because they're no longer sustainable we are entering a new landscape of potential do not rest on this even in my stupid little solo project where i'm just sitting here in front of the mic but i'm super excited about buying two s9s and heating my damn basement i just want to be a part of it in any way that i can and i hope That a bunch of you guys are taking the opportunity to play, to experiment, to build as well. I mean, it's the only way out of this shit. The political apparatus only knows how to corrupt and punish. We're not going to punish our way out of a problem. We're in a place where we don't even know what things are going to look like on the other side of this. We're moving toward a horizon where the world simply has to change. And who knows what we find as the tide shifts. You never know what you could end up being a part of. I mean, it's amazing. Like, like, uh, court Harrington, who, uh, got me in touch with the, the blood plasma thing. Like that was like just kind of an offhand conversation that he had with someone that turned into something that could very well be pretty big. Like I'm genuinely excited about it to come to my area. Like I fully intend to have a hundred dollars more in Bitcoin every week. Or at least as much as I can for donating plasma, and it's just interesting to think how small of a thing could become. Could become something so big, or or something just important, something that's fundamental to, or even something that's small but that has that butterfly effect to the next thing, to the next big thing. You know, we have to. The most important thing to do in an environment like this is to realize. That there's not a map here. There's not a set of instructions to download, to follow. A lot of this is going to have to be experimentation. This is uncharted territory. We're so trapped in this idea of, I have to get permission. I have to find the textbook that shows me exactly how to do it. I need step-by-step instructions. And that is not the era we are in. We are in the play era. We are in the experiment. We are in a disruption phase. We are in an, an, a zone of societal shift where everything is splintering into a thousand different directions, and we're having to build the maps again. It's also why I love the analogy of, you know, Bitcoin is the new frontier by uh, Croesus, or Bitcoin, Bitcoin in the West, or Bitcoin in the American West. That's what the thing is called. Uh, that's what the article' is called. Um, I highly encourage uh, anyone who has not listened and or read that one to go check that one out. Uh, I love that one. I think it's a great analogy, like where the you know the phases and the mountain men and the gold prospectors and all of this stuff, because I think it's such a great analogy. And seeing, you know, exploring something just like this in the mining and industry, uh, energy industry, and how these things are set to change in such a major way. I think it's just the perfect framing. It's the frame. It's that. It's that framing of where we are and what is happening. And I think it's really just kind of a beautiful way to look at all of this. Because I don't know. I think it's right. I think it's. I think it's the right way to look at it. So anyway, anyway, with that, um, I am out of time. Thank you to the guys who held me accountable today on Twitter. I'm doing this accountability accountability sats thing. So if you see me on Twitter during the week and I'm shit posting or just being angry about politics or whatever bullshit, ask me what I have gotten done today, what did I record. If I make my, if I made my way to Twitter before being productive, I will owe the first person who calls me out on it 2100 sats and that is as long as I can afford to. I don't know how bad my Twitter conditioning really is, so we'll see if I just end up being poor from this. <laughs> But thank you guys so much for listening. Congrats to the handle. Uh, Dude, I'm stoked for winning the Fountain app streaming sats giveaway. Uh, The Fountain crew, I will let them know, and they will be in touch to deliver those precious sats to you soon. Uh, Thanks to Swan Bitcoin and the Bitbox hardware wallet for keeping the lights on here and keeping me fed and in front of the mic. And check out all the details for sponsors with discount links and referrals, all that good stuff at guyswan.com slash sponsors uh, and also write in the show notes. And don't forget to check out the bitcoinaudible.com vote page. Thanks to all the guys who boosted this piece. It made my selection for today's read very easy. And I will catch you all on tomorrow's episode. This is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. And until next time, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.